Welcome to another edition of Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, produced in association with Caffeine Nights Publishing, where we chat with significant people working in television and show business whose voices and stories are never usually heard. This week's guest enjoyed an incredible 40-year career in British television. As a floor manager, his was a familiar and reassuring figure behind the cameras on so many iconic productions at ATV associated television shows ranging from crossroads the golden shot spitting image and the royal variety performance and latterly as a highly respected production manager at london weekend television guiding innumerable editions of an audience with along with glamorous specials at the london palladium you know the list of international superstars with whom this gentleman has worked is almost endless so it is a huge thrill for me and an honour to welcome a true behind-the-scenes hero, Mr. Keith Lascelles. Welcome, Keith. Morning, Colin, and I'm delighted to be here, and I'm very flattered that you've asked me to even be part of your podcast. Well, you're such an essential part of British television, certainly ITV, ITV history, because you were there almost from the get-go, and the show's you've worked on which we'll come to and the people that you've worked with which we'll come to is just phenomenal you're you're a, a mainstay of itv in my view i i i flash it to my mind i first met you on the floor of spitting image when it was being directed by graham c williams and uh i only popped in to see graham because i think i was doing another show in another studio and graham said this is keith and uh, and you were charming, absolutely charming. And you looked at my shoes. And back in those days, it was kind of Miami Vicey. And I I didn't have socks on. And you looked at my shoes and you just pulled half of a little face. <laughs> <laughs> Which yes. really made me laugh. Absolutely. Welcome, sir. Um, enough of me talking, but I want to start this off, if I may, by saying your fame, sir, goes before you. Because you as well you know, have been recently portrayed on television by the, the actor Dan Hagley in the ITVX three-part biographical drama, Nolly, which charted the career of Noel Gordon. What was it like seeing yourself on television? It was a bit of a, a bit surreal, really. But, but what I, um, Russell T. Davis, who, who was the, um, the writer and, and the executive producer, one of the executive producers of it, had seen me because I'd done a, a Zoom call with him, with me. So he knew what I looked like. Um, and he must have uh, had a, got a mental note of, of what he wanted to do when he cast this guy. And I really thought he looked like me. I was sort of quite flattered in a way. Yes. Um, uh, what I looked like then. I mean, I don't look like that now, but I did look like then. So it was it was very flattering. And you, the star of that show, Nolly, it was a biographical drama about Noel Gordon, who was one of the biggest stars on ITV, on British television at that time, wasn't she? She was, um, and, and she was such a lovely person as well. Mm. I mean, I first met her, I, I joined ATV in 1968, and my first week um, working in television was to work on Crossroads for Monday to Friday. And then I did the Golden Shot on the Sunday uh, as overtime, which was rather nice. Mm. Uh, I got to know Nolly as a floor manager 
in those early days. And then I got to know her even better as time went on, which we'll no doubt come to a bit later on. Yes, please, if you may. And just for my younger, our younger listener, <laughs> Crossroads was uh, five evenings a week, one of the definitive soap operas on British television at a time when, although Coronation Street, which was running then, was only running two nights a week, if I remember rightly. Yeah. You, were bang- you were banging out five episodes of, of of Crossroads a week. When, I mean, it, it, there's an argument that goes on about what, is a soap opera. A soap opera was always thought of, certainly where it started in the States, as being on for five days a week. Coronation Street, when it started, was never a soap opera. Coronation Street was on twice a week. Um, so it was a, a twice-weekly serial, if you like. And Crossroads came along and was really the first five-day-a-week soap opera I mean, Crossroads and, and, and EastEnders now and, and most of the others are sort of more episodes. So you could say that they are now soap operas. So, you know. But um, it, was a, it was a huge juggernaut, Crossroads. Um, but unfortunately, as Russell T um, shows in, in the show that he did, they never really wanted it. They were sort of embarrassed about it and they never invested in it. And consequently, if you've got a show like um, EastEnders these days or, or Coronation Street, they've got dedicated studios. The studios are there. They are set up. The sets very rarely move. I mean, something like The Rover's Return, um, would ne- would, that set would never move. It would be in one corner of the studio and be there forever. And you can staple it to the, to the walls almost and make it out of very solid material. Mm. Crossroads wasn't like that because it had to come out of the studio every week when we finished recording. uh, We'd finished recording at 8 o'clock. By 9 o'clock, the whole thing, the whole studio was clear, and they'd start setting up the golden shots or spitting image or bullseye or whatever it happened to be. It never had a dedicated studio. So consequently there was always this criticism of the the walls wobbling well they did because it was never sort of stuck down properly and crossroads was an enormous juggernaut as you say but what a professional production to act and i use the word banged out and i'm going to say churned out and that's not meant to be a, a, a criticism at all like okay those shows were produced like a like a factory and once again, that sounds wrong because the standards were so high, the standards of acting and production, given, I don't know, sixpence and a piece of string to, 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 to make all those episodes all the time was a phenomenal achievement. So that's a long way of asking, was the three-part drama series Nolly, was it a fair representation in the studio of what it was like at ATV making that show in the 60s? It was mainly true. I mean, a, a lot. He got lots of things right. He spoke to me. He um, and spoke to lots of other people. He spoke to Liz Stern, who was the stage manager on it for years. He spoke to Sue Hansen, who was Miss Diane. He spoke to Tony Adams, who was Adam, um, uh, Tony Adams. Adam Chance. Uh, not Adam, yeah, <laughs> was Adam Chance. Chance yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 
Um, and he, he spoke to all these people, so he got a feel to it. He also very cleverly, at the top of, of, of each um, show that he did, uh, it says, a cap- the very first thing you see is a caption that says, based on a true story, some characters and scenes have been invented, mm-hmm. which meant he could do anything he wanted. And he did. Um, there were lots of inaccuracies. I mean, I will defend Nolly to the hilt. She never directed from the floor. So all that business of, of the way that she spoke to, to Jack Barton at the beginning and how she was in the rehearsal room, she was never like that. And the other thing that I took great exception to um, was the way she treated her fans. I mean, she would never be discourteous to her fans. And there were a couple of times in the, the show where he had Helena Bonham Carter, who I thought was magnificent as Nolly, I have to say. I thought she did a great job. But there was a scene with her and Tony Adams outside Rackham's, and a guy comes up and, and, and wants to talk to her and, and says, um, why did they get rid of that husband of yours? And she just turned around and said, because he was a a lousy fuck, darling. Well, she would never say that to the public. She she would swear, like lots of the rest of us, but she would never swear in front of the the public. Mm. And I found that difficult to sort of come up, uh, come to terms with. Yeah. um, No, generally, I thought it was very good. The one thing that I'm quite also sad about is that um, Nolly went to her grave not knowing who it was that was really responsible for getting rid of her. And, of course, Russell in the uh, documentary, sorry, in the drama, um, does come to the truth, which we've known for some time, that it wasn't um, uh, Charles Denton. It was, in fact, Jack Barton, the producer who got rid, rid of her, because he couldn't cope with her. He um, found it very difficult. Reg Watson, um, she had known Reg from the 50s when he, Nolly, and Ned Sherin went off to America to um, Lou Grade sent them to a university over there to learn how to make television programmes at speed. And they came back. So she knew Reg really well, and they had a mutual respect for each other. And um, she adored working with Reg. And when Reg went back to Australia in 1974, when Reg Grundy um, managed to poach him to do, because he was Australian, but also to do the shows that um, Reg Grundy wanted to do, which ended up by being things like Prisoner Cell Block H, Sons and Daughters, Young Doctors, uh, Neighbours. Um, all those sort of things. Um, she was a bit lost, and she she didn't she didn't really get on that well with Jack Barton, and he just couldn't cope with her. Mm. As a viewer, as a young, young, young viewer, it was always a reassuring name to see the at the end of the credits on Crossroads, Reg Reggie's name. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course he did he did all the stuff before that with her, or things like um, uh, lunchbox and things like that. Just going back to, to Russell T for a second, I must tell you, uh, and it, it's his story, not mine, but it, I I was lucky enough to be invited to the press release a few weeks ago 
when he um, he came and, and and explained how they managed to persuade ITV to to do the dramas. He and Nicola Schindler, the uh, executive producer, uh, went to ITV and saw the head of drama and walked in and, and said to the head of drama, we've got this fantastic idea of doing a show about Noel Gordon. And the head of drama at ITV said, who's he? <laughs> yes. How quickly we forget. It, it sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds absolutely well, she, right. She, next month, she would have been dead 38 years. Oh, my Lord. That's so it, is a, it is a long time. Um, yeah. and, and it's brave of them after all that time to still be doing something about it, really. But Russell had always wanted to find out why it was that she was sacked and has managed it, you know. And, and, and discovered why. Yeah. They also, the, the show also played a little bit fast and loose with facts because it, it wasn't Tony Adams' character that drove Noel Gordon around and was so close to her, you know, driving around in the Rolls Royce and living cheek by jail with her. As her confidant, it wasn't him at all. It was, in fact, you. Um, yes, I mean, I. Well, it's best I tell you how it, we we sort of got to got to this stage. I suppose I'd been working with her, as I said, as a, a floor manager um, uh, doing crossroads, and we got on very well. And one Friday night, we were. Um, doing a recording and uh, something broke. Um, I forget what the tape machine or something broke. And we all had to grind to a halt for a bit. So I told everybody to sit down while they fixed it. And then we'd carry on and finish the recording. And Nolly went and, and sat down in what we all know as her sitting room. And she was on her own. And I thought, well, I can't just leave her sitting there. I'll go and sit sit with her and chat and we chatted and we were talking and I said um what are you doing the weekend she said oh she said I've got a a personal appearance in wherever it was and she said and my mother uh, is insisting on coming with me now her mother was in her 80s by this stage and she said it's such a problem for me because mother wants to come to look after me, but I end, end up looking after mother. And it becomes, as she said, the whole thing becomes a nightmare. So I, I, we were chatting and I said, well, do you want me to come with you tomorrow? Would that help? And she said, would you? And I said, yes. And of course I did that once. And <laughs> that was the start of it. Really? she, she just loved my involvement, and it was that was early in in nineteen seventy four, and that was the same year that um, she was asked by Larry Grayson to do um, six weeks at the London Palladium that he did a show called Grayson's Scandals, which ran in um, October and November of nineteen seventy four with people like Keith Harrison. Um, Orville and people like that um, and um, the idea was that we would commute between Birmingham and London in the roles, she would do two shows at the Palladium twice nightly and then we would travel back 
And she sort of said, darling, I can't do that for sort of six weeks. I'm going to have to try and get some time off from Crossroads. And Crossroads, being as magnanimous as they usually are, <laughs> gave her two weeks out of the six. So for four of the six weeks, we were commuting daily up and down the motorway. Well, in that time, you get to know somebody awfully well. Yeah. Um, and she uh, she never treated me as a as a chauffeur. It was always as a friend. She never sat in the back of the Rolls Royce. She always sat next to me. Oh, that's always a good sign. Yeah. Um, she was, you know, she wasn't grand or anything like that. And we just talked about everything. And we used to play music. She'd have her favourite bits of music. I'd have my bits, favourite bits of music, which we'd play on the, in the car on the way up and there. And over six weeks, you, as I say, you, you get to know somebody really well. And we came back and she bought the house next door to where she lived as an investment. And she asked me to move in with her. So, yes, I moved into the house next door to her. And I lived there for seven years. Wow. And um, when I left, Tony Adams did move in there for a year, but that was all. Um, so, yes, and we had some great adventures. I mean, we we went went to Australia together to see Reg, um, and we went all over the place. Um, we went to Corfu, went down to her health farm, um, mm. and we um, also went to, um, to Glen Eagles, um, which was – Another great adventure and a lovely story that happened when we went to, to Glen Eagles. Um, her mother came with us. on the, the first time we went up, her mother came, and we booked three rooms for us next to, to each other. And we arrived, and as you drive up to Glen Eagles, um, the, the, you get descended on by, by the staff who take all the bags and then the car disappears as well. <laughs> yes. Then you get to your room and the bags are there. And this happened to us and, and we got to the rooms and we, we decided we'd have a meeting about what we were going to do next. And her mother said, oh, she said, I've left my slippers in the back of the car. Because she always travelled with, with her slippers on because she was sitting in the back of the rolls. She said, I've left my slippers in the car. She said, we, I need to get them. And Nolly said, oh, I've left a pair of sunglasses. So uh, I said, well, don't worry. I said, I'll ring down. I'll find out where the car is, and I'll go and retrieve the items and, and come back. So um, there is a, a, a – I ring down, and they said, oh, yes, what did you want? And I explained. And they said, um, okay, fine. Five minutes later, there is a knock on the door and there is a man holding a silver salver with a dome on the top. And you remove the dome off the silver salver and there were the slippers and there were the sunglasses. <laughs> and you think, that's it. I've arrived in the league. Fantastic. You so, mentioned, you mentioned uh, just moving on, if I may, a little bit, because you mentioned Golden Shot. The fact that you spent five days on Crossroads and then on the Sunday onto yeah. the live Golden Shot, which as a floor manager, that must have been an arduous task as well, because Golden Shot is an insanely dangerous concept for a live television show. You couldn't do it now. I mean, you just could not do it now. I mean, the thoughts of, of live um, crossbow bolts. <laughs> 
flashing around the studio in the hands of people who have never touched a crossbow <laughs> in their lives in a confined space. I mean, it just wouldn't wouldn't happen. And and yes, we tried to do. I mean, health and safety wasn't the health and safety of today. You didn't have to fill out huge amounts of, of forms to allow. You, and and but we got away with it. And um, working that was my first sort of working with Bob, who was. An absolute delight. I mean, I got to know Bob um, reasonably well, and and Jackie, his wife, who was a fairly formidable lady, but was always lovely to me. And um, all over the years, we kept bumping into each other at different events, and um, he was he was just fabulous to hmm. to to know, really. I'm sure as a floor manager, when you're working on a live show like that, it's it's I use the word reassuring again. It was it's reassuring to have a host of a show who is so accomplished and so in command. It's a huge weight off your mind, as I guess it is with uh, actress actors and actresses of the standard on Crossroads, especially Noel Gordon on Crossroads. You know, it, it, well, it, it, with something like Golden Shots, I mean, Bob was a, a very safe pair of hands. I mean, it was. It started off by being live for many years. It was live until we started to get bomb threats. And then they decided that for some reason we would record it an hour earlier so that the bomb threats we knew were a hoax. Um, but it was always it was always a difficult show to do. Um, but um, because of timings, because you never quite knew with guest stars, with comics and people like that, whether they were going to overrun because you couldn't edit when you were live. You just kept going, you mm. know. Yeah. And Bob was great because he could he could pull it back so easily. It was a delight. Good. I'm glad I'm glad to know One that. One other quick story about um Nolly um at the Palladium. We uh, just after we'd done the um the the thing with uh uh, Larry Grayson, Nolly and I were invited to go and see Liberace, who was appearing at the uh, Palladium uh, doing his show. And it was late on in his career and he wasn't the, the wellest of people, but um, uh, he was he was fabulous. He, he did this um, two hour show and he had the dancing waters at the back of the stage and as he played the piano so these waters would all all dance mm. and um we went to see him and and a lovely man who was the um theater um manager of the palladium man called john avery was um was out, was looking after us and uh after we after the show had finished he said to us because nolly had inter nolly had interviewed liberace once when she was doing her chat show before, long before Crossroads started, she'd interviewed him once. So she, um, John Avery said, Well, let's go around and have a look at the dancing waters. And then you can, well, I'll introduce you again to Liberace and you can renew your acquaintance with him. So we go up on the stage and we're looking at these dancing waters. And suddenly I'm aware of this little old bald headed man in a dressing gown walking towards us and i turned around and it was liberace wow and the 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 wig had come off he just put a dressing gown on the shoulders had turned over like and he walked like a little old man and it wasn't you could see that 
very much like somebody else I'll talk about at a later stage. Um, when the curtain goes up or he has to walk on the stage, they become alive. It's my public. I am here. And suddenly they are a different person. But in, in private, suddenly you find is a completely different person. Isn't that amazing? I, I didn't know. Um, you mentioned Bullseye, and it strikes me, Keith Lascelles, that in your illustrious career, there are a couple of times when you've been associated with shows which have been frowned upon by management. The management have been embarrassed by, were embarrassed by Crossroads. They were also horribly embarrassed by Bullseye, which you mentioned, which puzzles me because if a show's getting ratings, why would you be embarrassed by it? But that's as maybe. Um, and I want to talk about Bully in a minute. But I want to drag you into the conversation to mention a dear friend, friend of yours, and a, one of my great heroes and a good friend of mine, Mr. Peter Harris, the producer and director, uh, because you worked very closely with Peter in your career. Yes, Peter. Peter, uh, I met Peter very early on, uh, again in 1968 when I first went went to um, ATV. Um, Peter was a puppeteer. Um, on a local program that we did uh, in the Midlands called Tinger and Tucker, Tinger and Tucker Club, which was hosted by a continuity announcer called lady called Jean Morton. And there were three puppeteers. There was John Burnell, Peter Connor and Peter Harris. And um, this show had been running for years with uh, Reg Watson as the um, uh, executive producer again. And um, Peter was always very talented. He was a, a, an accomplished musician and um, he was always destined for better things. And when sort of Tinger and Tucker um, was coming to an end, Peter wanted to sort of move on. And he, first of all, became a, a floor manager, which he'd done prior to Tinger and Tucker. So he came back to, to being a, a floor manager. And um I was his AFM on the first thing that he did. We did a play up in Stoke-on-Trent. I forget what the name of the play was, but a, a, a man called Peter Cheeseman was the um, producer of this show. Mm. And the idea was that we went up, up to Stoke-on-Trent to rehearse this show, and then he would, um, they would come down one weekend and we would record it in the studios, um, replicate the, the sets and whatever. And I'd been going up and down with Peter and getting to know Peter quite well. And um, one Friday night, Peter um, said to me um, uh, on the way back, we were in his little sports car um, on the motorway. Um, it was absolutely freezing. It was in the depths of winter. But he got the heater on, so my feet were very warm, but the rest of it was freezing. And uh, Peter suddenly turned around and said... Um, when will you realise what you are? And I said, I beg your pardon? He said, when will you realise what you are, darling? So everything was darling with mm. Peter. And um, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, nothing, I'm going home. He said, no, you're not. You're coming to my club with me. And Peter took me to the only gay club in Birmingham at the time. Um, which is long gone. Um, but um, I was shocked. But it meant that walking into a, a club like that was the first time I'd ever been. Uh, but P 
Peter, Peter and I became very firm friends after that because he was through him that I sort of came out and, mm. and, and was able to be myself. And um, Peter went on to become a uh, director. He Another lovely quick story. He went for, was asked to go for an interview um, to, for his job as a director, and there were three people on the board for the director, and everybody smoked in those days. And as and Peter was a chain smoker, and uh, as um, he uh, walked into the room, the uh, somebody on the board said, "You may smoke if you wish." And Peter said, "Who's got the fags then?" <laughs> that was that was the way Peter was with people. But no, he went on, of course, to do. Um, uh, the Muppets. Mm. Um, he was asked to do the Muppets, which he did down in Elstree, and we lost him from from Birmingham for quite a while. Mm. And then when Muppets came to an, an end, um, a man who was head of entertainment in Birmingham, well, for ATV uh, in those days, was a man called John Scofield. Yeah. Um, who nobody particularly liked. Um, um, There were several of those. Um, (laughs) John Scofield said to Peter, he said, um, uh, Peter went to see him to see what he wanted him to do because of Muppets finishing. And he said, well, I suppose you'd better get back to Birmingham and learn how to shoot people with legs now. Oh, charming. That's lovely. Because the Muppets didn't know. Um, So Peter came back to Birmingham and he was given a piece of paper by John Scofield, just a, a an outline of a show, um, which sort of said things like, um, people throw darts at a dartboard and win prizes. And there were about five lines like that, and that's all there was. Mm. And he said, develop it and, and, and get it on. So Peter said, well, who are we going to get to um, uh, host it? And John Scofield said, well, there's a comic that we've been using to um, to do warm-ups, a guy called Dave Ismay. Um, I'd like to give him a, a tryout. Let's do a pilot with Dave Ismay and see what uh, how it works out. So um, Peter went to see Dave Ismay uh, at his home to talk to him about this. And he explained the concept and, and, and what it was all about. And that Peter said, we'd like you to do, whether it will go for a series, we don't know, but we'd like you to, to do the pilot. And Dave Ismay said, well, let me have a look at my diary. And he looked at his diary and uh, he said, oh, I'm not available that night. I've got a gig. Oh. And that's why Dave Ismay never became the presenter of Bullseye. And they moved on to Jim Bowen, and the rest is... Which which then upped the ratings for about 15 series, didn't Jim they? was such a lovely man. I got to know Jim um, so well. Um, we used to go up and, and visit him at, home, at his home and, and, and when he was appearing in Blackpool and everything. And he was, he was just a joy to be around, Jim. He yeah. was... He was a very, very funny man. Yeah, and also incredibly humble and and slightly bewildered to begin with the fact that he was hosting the show and truthfully not making the best job of it to begin with. I mean, we were doing jokes like uh, Bullseye is the only show where the contestants know the rules better than the host, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
And on, yeah, celebrity, yeah. on the celebrity squares, um, I invited Bob Monkhouse to say, and sitting in that square is 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 Jim Bowen. Um, uh, and if crime doesn't pay, why does Jim Bowen drive a Rolls Royce? Those kinds of jokes. And my God, he took it on the chin with such good humour, didn't he? Yeah, it was. He was lovely. He was. He, he he'd been a teacher in pre, pre, prior to to becoming a comic, and uh, he was very bright. Yeah. Um, but um, but he was just a, a lovely, lovely man. And Phyllis, his wife. Was 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 absolutely fabulous. Um, I still get a Christmas card from her even now. Oh, that's. And right. then of course Peter. Going back to Peter. Peter then mm. went on. Uh, Peter also started Tizwas, of course, mm. um, with with Chris Tarrant and and um, Lenny Henry and and people like that. And that ran for eight years. We did over three hundred. Um, tis was. I didn't do them all. Um, uh, if you were a floor manager in Birmingham, you all got a turn in, in doing tis was, but they were great fun. Another programme you couldn't do these days um, because of all the water being thrown about the studio. I mean, when you think of all the electricity yes. in those studios, and there were people throwing buckets of water over each other. Over children in cages. Yes, yes absolutely. You just couldn't do it these days. I mean, Peter was Peter Harris was much loved. He was a larger than life uh, entertainment director producer. He had an explosive temper, temper which would volcanically erupt and then dissipate in just as quickly as it erupted, oh, and it would carry on. And I, I have the fondest of, of memories of Peter, and he was so so good to me. Um, you also floor managed lunchtime with Wogan. I did. Um, just, just can we just finish off very quickly? I was oh, please! Yeah, about Peter is of course Peter was was in on the um, start of Spitting Image. Um, Peter, Peter um, did Spitting Image. Uh, he was the obvious choice because he'd done Muppets. So that when Spitting Image came along, with um, produced by John Lloyd. And had people, the very first series of, of Spitting Image we did, we tried to do with live voices. So that as, as you were actually recording the, the visuals, you were recording the voices at the same time, which didn't really work because we were trying to change sets at the same time. So the amount of noise that was going on in the studio. But the some of the original uh, puppeteers, who did not only did the puppets but the voices was Chris Barry was one of them from sort of Britus and um, Red Dwarf. Mm. Um, Chris, um, the lovely Louise Gold, who had worked on Muppets for years and years and years, and a, a great friend who I still see and, and, and saw only a couple of weeks ago, Steve Nallen, who did the voice of of Mrs Thatcher. So Peter was involved in all of that as well. So I had a huge career. Yeah, yeah. One of the great legends of, of ITV. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, so, Lunchtime with Wogan, you've floor managed that. Yeah. And let me get, put it in some sort of perspective. Uh, it was one of the first shows that Terry Wogan uh, presented on British television, if memory serves as well. And I remember uh, rushing home from Wilson High School uh, when I was in the sixth form to actually watch Lunchtime with Wogan at home because I, I liked him very much, and I liked the show enormously. Uh, the nicest of men, Terry Wogan. Absolutely lovely. I've been very lucky in some of the the really nice people that I have met. I've also met one or two 
not so nice people <laughs> in my time, but we've all met them. But Terry was just an absolute delight. I did, um, I, don't, I can't remember how many shows of, of lunchtime we've woken. It was only, I think, one series. I think it might have been about 12 shows or something. But it, it was an absolute delight and wanted to learn all the time. Hmm. Uh, didn't want to rehearse, but wanted to learn. Yes. Um, and he was lovely. And I hadn't seen him for quite a few years. And um, I briefly left ITV and went to work at the BBC for a year after I was made redundant. And not made redundant. Well, yes, made redundant like, with 684 other people in Birmingham. Um, and I went to work at the BBC for um, Good Morning with Anne and Nick. And we were to have Terry Wogan on as, as a guest one week. He was promoting um, Children in Need and he was coming up. And the, because he was still doing his radio show, the only way we could get him there was by helicopter. And um, we, I organised the helicopter for him to, to, to fly up to Birmingham. And the nearest place that we could find for him to get out of this helicopter was the local golf club. So they... I, I was the production manager on this show, and they said, I said, well, I'll go up and meet him because I know him. And so I got a car and we went up and, to meet him, and the helicopter landed. And Terry got out of the helicopter, and I could see him sort of in the distance. And he shouted at the top of his voice, Keith Lascelles, where have you been all my life? <laughs> and it's lovely when people who you've worked with sort of years later still remember who you are. Yeah. Yeah, the mark of a true star, isn't it? Yeah. Another true star that you work with, I only worked with briefly, met briefly, and loved her from the moment I saw her, Marty Kane on New Faces. Yeah, I I had a, a fabulous time with Marty. We did three three years on New Faces from the Birmingham Hippodrome in 1986, 87 and 88. And um, to me, it, I was back in the theatre, which is my sort of spiritual home. I, I adore working in the theatre. Um, that's why I've done so many shows from the Palladium over the years. Mm. And um, I just, she was just a joy um, and a really nice lady as well. Um, we used to sit and chat. Bef again, um, directed by Peter Harris. Mm. Um, we used to have a meal um the night before each show so that the contestants could get to know Marty and some of the production team. And we all sort of sat in different places. And I often got to sit with Marty and she was just a delight. It was mm. so sad when, when it was funny. We, we did the, the third year and at the end of the third year, we'd done the, the live final and I found her sort of wandering around the um, the uh, corridors of the Birmingham Hippodrome. And I said, are you all right? And she said, can I have a word? And I said, yeah, of course. And we went into her dressing room and she told me that she'd got three forms of cancer. Yeah. And uh, it, um, it totally destroyed me because she was just such a lovely person. And um, I went to a funeral or something. And enormously talented and a pioneer really because there weren't that many with the exception maybe of karen Kay, there weren't that many funny women on british no, television right. and, right. she, and she was sassy she she was the complete package for me i thought she was yeah. glorious yeah. um 
You meant okay. Let's spin back right to the beginning. Then you mentioned your love of the theatre before we get on to your significant role in the Palladium shows and the Royal Variety show, if we may. Were you always interested in show business right from the get go when you were growing up? Did you want yes, to see I mean, television? I my grandparents um, always. My grandfather loved taking me to see variety shows. And used to take me to all the variety theatres in Birmingham, including the Hippodrome. And I suppose watching comics and and variety shows from Birmingham in in the early days in Birmingham. I, I my parents were never a showbiz family, but I was always encouraged to you know go into television, go into the theatre, and that's where my love of it all sort of happened, really. Mm. Yeah, it's, I love it when people who, who don't have a showbiz background at all manage to get into the industry. Yeah, you know, and I suppose to a certain extent I can identify with that. Now, Royal Variety Show, you were involved with so many when ITV was produ- was taking their share of that particular magnificent gala event. It really was when you were doing that show. It was the most significant television and show business show uh event let's use that word again event in in the show business calendar wasn't it it was yeah um and i got to do quite a few my first one was in 1969 um uh most of them from the from the palladium and uh, i did loads over the years a lot when i was working from birmingham and a lot um, when i worked at, at lwt as well um i suppose the biggest one of all was the 1977 Royal Variety performance, which was dubbed um, America Salutes the Queen. It was for the Silver Jubilee. And it was produced by two American guys, a guy called Dwight Hemian and Gary Smith. Um, and they um, came up and, and persuading persuaded a load of American stars to be part of it. I mean, I'll just give you a... Uh, this isn't the full list, but this is a, a rough list of, of the people who were in this 1977 Royal Variety. It was hosted by Bob Hope. The top of the bill was Julie Andrews. Shirley MacLaine closed the first half. Plus that, there was Harry Belafonte, The Muppets, Tommy Cooper, Paul Anker, Cleo Lane, Johnny Dankworth, Rudolf Nureyev, and I mean, the list just goes on. That was before you got to any of the British people that included people like Little and Large and Brotherhood of Man and people like that. Yeah, every one of those American names was a, was a, a top of the bill. Absolutely huge. Memories of that particular jubilee then? You're working with some stellar names like Hope and, and Nureyev and, and Shirley MacLaine. Well, the, the two big stories, I suppose, involved Rudolf, Rudolf Nureyev, first of all, um, he was called to rehearsal. There was a man that used to um, direct the show in those days, um, a man called Robert Nesbitt, um, who was a fairly formidable character, uh, like the sound of his own voice. And um, he used to uh, produce, could never understand why television uh, couldn't just shoot um, variety shows. Didn't understand why we needed microphones. It was very strange. Um, and um, he, uh, we called, Rudolf Nureyev had been called for rehearsal on the Sunday night at, I think, something like nine o'clock. 
and he'd asked for a rehearsal bar um, on the side of the stage so he could do his his exercises. And um, we we got the exercises and he, he appeared and he did, did all these, kept cocking his leg up and everything. <laughs> Stretches and stuff, balletic. That was, was this the one that was up in Edinburgh, Keith? No, that one, the, the, this one was the Palladium. Oh, right, yeah, forgive me, you said, yeah. Nureyev walked on the stage at, at, at nine o'clock, having done his exercises, expecting to rehearse. And Robert Nesbitt, who is standing at the back of the, uh, the stalls, shouts at the top of his voice, we're not ready for you yet, dear. At which point, Nureyev, who had a towel round his neck, took the towel, threw it to the floor and just went, <laughs> went back to his dressing room. So we regrouped, and about five minutes later, I was asked to go to his dressing room to try and get him back. And um, so I went to his dressing room and knocked on the door, and this rather Russian voice said, who is it? And I said, oh, it's the floor manager, Mr. Nureyev. And he shouted, come in. So I walked in, and he's standing in front of the mirror, stark bollock naked. <laughs> he was a very big boy. I didn't know where to look. It was one of those embarrassing situations. That, well, what do you do? There's, there's you standing in front of a very naked man. So I spent the whole conversation looking at the ceiling. He found this quite amusing <laughs> conversation for what I suppose in reality was about two minutes. It felt like about two hours to me. <laughs> Anyway, the, 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 in the same show, we had <laughs> Shirley MacLaine. And I was a huge fan of Shirley MacLaine. I'd seen her in in different things. And I, I just loved the woman. I thought she was a, such a great talent. Anyway, she arrived and, and she we had a meeting and she was told that they wanted her to do 15 minutes to close the, the first half. And we'd organised a dressing, uh, sorry, a rehearsal room for her. And we went out to a, a rehearsal room to um, rehearse. And um, she wanted to do three different sections from her one-woman show and put them together. And um, we, um, we, we started and we, we did it and we timed it. And it came to something like 17 minutes. And I was under strict instructions that she wasn't to go over at all it had to run 15 minutes so i went up to her and i explained that it was running two minutes over and could we do something about taking two minutes out and she said yes yes fine i'll do it in a different order oh yeah we did the same three pieces in a different order and she couldn't understand why it still came out at two minutes over so that was my experience of that. Anyway, we got to the, the the night of the show, and the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh are in the uh, in the box and watching the show. And she comes on. She follows Tommy Cooper, and she comes on, and she absolutely storms the place. She is absolutely brilliant, phenomenal woman. And um, the curtain came down on the first half, and she walked over to me, and she said, uh, "I need to do that again." I said. Uh, sorry, we we don't do re-records. On, I said the Queen is a senior act now. I'm sure she enjoyed it, but we can't do it a, a second time. 
no, 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 you don't understand. I have to do it again. And I said, what was wrong with it? She said, my MD, she said, the tempos were all over the place. And she said, take me to the van, because the, the, we had a, an OB van outside, outside mm. the theatre. And she wanted to see Gary and Dwight, and she went and, and ranted and raved at them and said that she wanted to do it again. And um, she um, she was told, no, she couldn't do it again. Mm. Um, and that was that. And then uh, right at the end of the show, um, I'd taken an LP that I'd got of hers that I thought, I must get her to sign it. Mm. And I kept forgetting to ask her to, to sign this thing. And it came to the setting up for the finale and Julie Andrews is on stage and she's singing her spot. And all the artists ready for the finale were standing on the side. And I thought, this is my chance to get my autograph. Mm. So then I get my pen and I go get my... Um, uh, record and I take it over and I said, Miss McLean, I wonder if you'd be kind enough to sign this for me. And she looked me straight in the eye and she just said, "Oh, oh lovely." Uh, but I still love the woman because oh, she is a talent, and sure. you know she is. Uh, she was just fabulous. Turns, eh, Keith? Turns. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what about uh, that? That's a um, an all round entertainer. Um, and you work closely with Bob Monkhouse. Were were and Jim Bowen uh, were comedians in any way easier to work with from a, a show business point of view? Some were. I mean, I, I I've worked a lot with uh, Joe Pasquale. Of course, hmm. we found on new faces. Yeah, yeah. Um, I Peter Harris again. We went around the country doing the auditions for um, for uh, new faces, and we had. We sat through a lot of rubbish. <laughs> Some of the people that turned up, we used to have sort of like 300 people turn up to audition, and some of them were absolutely terrible. And we were going around the country, this was in the middle year, 1987, and we went to Norfolk, of all places, and we'd had such a bad few days, and we thought... <laughs> You're never going to find anybody in Norfolk, are you? I'm sorry for all the people who are listening from Norfolk, but we thought, well, this is never going to happen. Um, and suddenly Joe auditioned for us in Norfolk. And he, from the moment he auditioned, he was just, he had us in stitches. He's such a, a genuinely funny man. Mm. And the other person I, I absolutely adore, who is also still a friend, and the other person that I've had a, a, a great friendship with ever since is, is Bradley Walsh. And Bradley is just one of the nicest people you could ever wish me to meet. He is he's very, very hardworking, uh, as you know, from the amount of, of television programmes that he does. Um, yes. um, but uh, again, a lovely man. But Joe, going back to Joe, Joe is just an absolute delight. And I... I've seen Joe quite a bit afterwards. Since then, he's he's done one or two char charity galas for me. Mm. Uh, we did I did a charity gala for the Entertainment Artist Benevolent Fund, and um, he was on with um, uh, Ken Dodd, and um, we put, we had to put him on first because he was working in somewhere like St Albans or somewhere, and um, he was worried about how we were going to get him to St Albans after he'd done the first ten minutes on this show at the Palladium. And um, we got him a, a bike 
uh, one of these passenger bikes that you can get. And he, he absolutely adored that. That was good fun. <laughs> um, what about American comics? Um, you mentioned Hope. Um, um, actually... Well, yeah, one of the one of the more difficult ones was um, Jackie Mason. Oh yeah, um, I worked with Jackie twice. Um, once at the Royal Albert Hall, we were recording. A, I don't know quite why we were doing it, but we were doing it to record as a, a DVD that he could put out and, and sell all over the world, um, Jackie Mason at the, the Royal Albert Hall. And the idea was that he was doing two shows on a Sunday to a predominantly very Jewish audience, obviously, because that was his his, his fan club, really. And um, uh, we would we, he would do two shows, and the idea was that we would take the best bits from one show and the best bits from another show, put them together to make this one DVD. Because you know, having worked with comics, sometimes sometimes the material goes well in one show, doesn't quite hit the mark in others. So you take the the best two bits. So he arrived at the uh, Royal Albert Hall and walked onto the stage with his um, wife, who was extremely difficult um and she kept sort of saying things like my jackie won't do this and my jackie won't do that and um she wanted a camera removed and one or two other things mm-hmm. anyway i i explained at great length that um because we were going to take bits from one show uh, and to another it was essential that jackie wore exactly the same clothing and she said, who do you think you're talking to? Don't you think we know this? Don't you think we know what you're saying? Hmm. So we did the first show, and he wore a very nice grey suit with a um, uh, blue shirt with a white collar. Came to the second show, and he was wearing the same suit with a white shirt and a blue collar. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the two shirts just didn't match. Didn't match. Um, and then the second time I worked with him was on a Royal Variety um, at the Dominion in Tottenham Court Road. Again, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. And I was looking after the Queen. I um, was, was responsible for making sure that she got from the front of house to the box and then in the interval to the and then afterwards uh, before she went down to to meet the artists and he was supposed to do 10 minutes on this royal variety performance and he ended up doing 25 minutes mm. Mm. and the duke of edinburgh was not at all pleased we were putting up signs on the auto queue saying last joke please and eventually the signs got worse and we sort of almost ended up putting a sign saying, get off. <laughs> and um, he, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh was not at all amused at this. And he came out um, and we went into the the area behind the, the, the royal box where the Queen always used to just sort of wait before going down on stage while they got everybody into mm. his line. And the Duke of Edinburgh was having a go at Laurie Mansfield saying, how dare this man go on for such a long time? He was dying on his side. Mm. And all this was was going on. And all of this time, the Queen, which she did 
every time I saw her in this situation, she got her handbag, she opened her handbag, she put her hand into the handbag, took out the lipstick, removed the top of the lipstick, and applied lipstick without the aid of a mirror to the bottom and top lip, and put the lid back onto the um, lipstick and put it back into the bag. All this time, the Duke of Edinburgh is in this row with Laurie Mansfield about how appalling John, Jackie Mason was. And the Queen, as she put the lipstick back into the bag, just said, really? <laughs> like, as if to say, I don't believe a bloody word of it. <laughs> she did it with one word. Oh, that's glorious. Glorious. I suppose once you've... Um, inverted commas, floor-managed the Queen, dealing with the megastars that you, you dealt with when you moved to London weekend, a uh, bit of a breeze, really, wasn't it? Um, yeah, some of them. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, had, I, had, I had so many happy times um, working with, with some really unusual people. Dennis Norton. Oh yeah, top man. Mm. Dennis Norton was was such a gentleman, and he was he was very talented. He used to write all that stuff that he did, the, all those links. And I did a, a lot. We did um, uh, we travelled around the country doing them. For some reason, they, they we couldn't find a dedicated studio in London. We ended you know, up doing some in Manchester and did something down in Southampton as well. And he was a lovely man, and unfortunately. Towards the end of his career, his sight was going and he couldn't read the autocue. Hmm. Um, and you sort of almost had to have the autocue about a foot away from his face, which, of course, when you're recording a show, is no good for the wide shots. So hmm. um, it became a real problem. And that was really, at the end, why he had to, to, to give it up. Yeah, it's a shame because he's the sweetest of men. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, about, what, what about difficult folk? Um, probably one of the, the most difficult encounters I had, again, was that um, 2001 Royal Variety from the Dominion in Tottenham Court Road um, with uh, Jennifer Lopez. Um, Jennifer Lopez was fine. It was her manager that was the problem. Um I uh, I got a phone call from um, this man to say that um, he wanted to talk to me about dressing rooms for Miss Lopez. So I explained that um, Royal Varieties are notoriously difficult in finding dressing rooms for people because there are so many people and so few dressing rooms. And um, I understood that uh, Miss Lopez didn't smoke, so we would try and find her a dressing room on her own so she didn't have to share with people like Joanna Lumley who did smoke and people like that. Mm. So um, he uh, he said, oh, no, no, he said, you don't understand. He said, I want two dressing rooms, two identical dressing rooms. And I sort of said, well, I'm sorry, the best that I can do is to to give you one dressing room. I said, do you mind me asking, what is the second dressing room for? And he said, oh, that's for me. <laughs> oh, dear me. 
Now, this is a royal variety where, you, as you know, you've got comics, about four comics, all sharing the same dressing rooms because they're, you're just so short of room. And this man wanted not only a dressing room for, um, for Jennifer Lopez, but an identical one for him. He couldn't be of any lower standard. And when I said no, he said, um, okay, he said, um, then we'll get two Winnebago's caravans. Yeah. Speak. And um, I said, well, I don't have anywhere to park them. And he said, well, I've just come in the theatre. There's nothing out the front of the theatre. And I said, that's where the Queen uh, rolls up in, in her car. And she and a, an elderly gentleman get out and, and come into the theatre. And he couldn't understand why um, he couldn't uh, provide him with what he wanted. We wanted. It's outrageous. Following the... day, the following day, just to top it all, um, I'm we're in the middle of of, of rehearsing, um, and she's not in the building. And I get a fo- a message to saying there's a phone call from this manager again. And I said, what does he want? They said, I don't know. He'll only speak to you. So I went and, and answered the phone. And I said, what did you want? And he said, uh, oh, he said, I want to talk to you about security. He said, I want to know that the security in the theatre is going to be good enough for Miss Lopez. And I said, well, if it's good enough for the Queen, yeah. it's good enough for Miss Lopez. <laughs> well said. I, I suppose you found over the years that actually when you get close to someone like Miss Lopez, they're actually charming and kind and sweet. It's only the people who are between them and you, the management and all the hangers on, uh, who prove to be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, Elson particularly um elson is lovely when you get to him but it's all the people that are around him mm. i worked with with elton on three occasions and, and, and all of them are delight apart from the sort of the run-up when you've got all these people saying he won't do this and he won't do that when in the truth is he will do these things if you ask him properly well, i i did um i did his audience with and that was a, a big show. Um, uh, I also did, um, uh, he, he did an, a, a Royal Variety, um, again, from um, uh, the Dominion one. Um, but he also did, we also did a show with him from America, uh, from New York. Um, Jeff Thacker and myself went over to New York to do um, a show with him from a place called um uh, studio 54 is the sony studios in in america and um cap Dealey was the host and um elton turned up on the thursday for a meeting and we're talking and saying um that we'd like to we're going to do the show live on the saturday afternoon at four o'clock because it goes out live in london at 10 so um, we had to do it um, as live at, at, at uh, eight o'clock. Uh, sorry, at um, four o'clock. Mm-hmm. And um... and I'm sure four o'clock probably wasn't convenient for him. He it wasn't. Really... It wasn't at all convenient. He he turned around and said, um, "I'm sorry, I'm uh, I'm going to Liza Minnelli's wedding, and um, I'm not available." And we said, um, 
uh, we're recording a show and he said well you'll have to do it early and we were supposed to do it live and mm. we uh, we ended up pre-recording it at 12 o'clock and um, London were asking us for voice um, levels to so they get the sound right mm. and um, uh, we uh, we Kat Dealey sort of said, I'll ask him a couple of questions. So she said to him, she said, um, Elton, she said, I understand that um, you're going to um, Liza Minnelli's wedding as soon as you finish this. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, I've fallen out with her. We're not going now. So, <laughs> Elton, so Kat said, oh, um, okay. Well, well, if you had been going, she would, uh, Liza Minnelli was marrying David Guest, who'd hmm. been on. It, I'm a celebrity, and he'd also done Big Brother, hmm. a very, very camp American gentleman. And um, she said, uh, if you had been going to uh, uh, to her wedding, uh, what would you have taken as a, a wedding present? And Elton looked straight into camera and just said, a heterosexual husband. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he was lovely. Elton... Elton is a great talent. Yeah, great. absolutely. Of all the great talents that you've worked with, because I'm aware of your time now, and uh, you've you've been so generous with your time for me for this podcast. Of all those people, who would be the most famous person that you either met or worked with? Uh, not somebody in show business, funnily enough. Hmm. Um, um, I. Uh, in the early 1980s, I was uh, doing all, all sorts of manner of, of shows. And um, Pope John Paul II was coming to this country to do a, um, uh, a visit where he was doing several um, uh, services around the country. And on the Sunday morning, he was doing a big open-air service at Coventry Airport. And um, we were told that we had to go and record this thing for not only us, but for the world. Because everything that the Pope does is obviously shown all over the world. And they they closed all the roads off to get to this Coventry Airport the night before. So all the people that were there had been there for like 24 hours. And the only way they could get us in was to fly us in by helicopter. So we went to Birmingham Airport, got in a helicopter, flew to Birmingham, uh, to Coventry Airport. And my job was to go to a compound that they'd built in the middle of the airfield where his, the Pope's helicopter would arrive. He would walk uh, to the compound and in the compound, he would robe into the things that he needed to wear for the mm. service and get into the Pope mobile. And I was to let the people outside know when the Pope mobile was about to enter the ground, as it were, having been in this compound. And there was, and I'm not a religious person at all, but there was this magical moment where the Pope got into the Pope mobile, all ready to go into the, the ground and see these 30,000 people that were waiting to, to see him, where apart from the driver who was in the front of the, 
Pope-mobile and couldn't see the Pope anyway because he was standing at the back. There was this magical moment where the Pope and I were sort of on our own and he sort of blessed me, just me. Wow. And that had the most profound effect on me. I can't begin to tell you what that was like because it wasn't like he was doing it to the masses. He was just doing it to me. It was your personal benediction. I, I don't think we can top the Pope. Can we? <laughs> really uh, no, probably not. Um, as I said, you've been so generous with your time and your contribution to British television over the over four decades. It's been absolutely phenomenal. Phenomenal. And, and so you've been an integral part of everything that I've watched and has entertained most of us for, for 40 years. So thank you for that, Keith. Uh, Colin, I've, I've enjoyed talking to you, and um, shall we do it again soon? Any time you want, Governor, because you're the boss. We have been listening to the frankly magnificent Mr Keith Lascelles. Thanks, Keith, and uh, see you next time, everybody.